eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hulu is coming in hot this month with new shows, new movies, and all new seasons of your faves. Don't miss FX's Clipped, the story of one NBA team's racial reckoning, starring Lawrence Fishburne. Stream a new season of Shorzy, the underdog hockey comedy that might just knock your teeth out. Then catch the high-speed drama Ferrari starring Adam Driver and Penelope Cruz. Kick your streaming into high gear this month with so much new stuff to watch on Hulu. All right, there we are, the first time I've ever seen it. Two men coming up the Tour de France and now do it together. The cheers are enormous and you can hear Cathy shouting, all right. This is a live broadcast during the 1986 Tour de France. The voices you are hearing are Phil Leggett, longtime announcer for the Tour de France, and Kathy Lamond, who is deep in the trenches of this epic cycling race to support her husband, American cyclist Greg Lamond. Greg Lamond and Ben Ardino have won this Tour de France together this year, and that's for sure, even if Lamond is the one wearing the leader's yellow jersey. The happiest moment in Greg LeMond's life, in Kathy's life too. Bernard Hinault was also known as the Badger. He was a teammate and mentor to Greg and a five-time winner of the Tour de France. Letting Hinault cross the finish line was Greg's way of saying thank you to the man who had helped him capture that yellow jersey. And certainly Bernard Hinault has produced in Greg LeMond a great champion. They are buried in people here. And this is the most emotional finish I can ever recall to a day in the Tour de France. Cycling is an individual sport. Only one rider ends up on the winner's podium. But it's also a team sport. The Tour de France takes three grueling weeks. So for one rider to win, they need help. They need a team to get him there. Basically, you have a series of teams with a number of riders, you know, seven to nine riders, and you identify a leader. And the leader is the best at all the various disciplines. It would be like being a swimmer and doing breaststroke, butterfly. That's John Dower, a British filmmaker who made a documentary called Slaying the Badger. It's about Greg, Eno, and their contentious relationship. For several years, Eno had been the leader of his team, La Vie Claire. So they identify a leader. And then all the other riders are what they call the sort of kitchen helpers, the domestiques, and they ride for the leader. You know, imagine bees, the queen bee. They ride for the leader. They protect the leader against the crosswinds. They bring him food and water because you're on a bike for six days. They help tow him up climbs. So if, you're, if you've ever cycled and you're cycling behind someone, you get a tow from their slipstream. Greg first found his place in this intricate choreography of the Tour de France when Eno traveled all the way from France to Nevada to offer Greg the role of co-captain. Greg describes himself at the time as being starstruck. You know, this guy's coming over to see me. He wants me on his team. There was a, a real friendship there at the beginning. Greg's job was to help Eno win, but his incentive was a promise that Eno made along with that first recruiting pitch. Help me win now... And when your time comes, I'll help make you a champion. So in 1985, despite being capable of winning the race, Greg stuck to his purpose as team player, boosting the Badger. 
They pacified Greg by saying, "Okay, we have held you back in this race, but we want Bernard to win his fifth. So you ride for Bernard this race, and in 1986, next year, you will be the team leader, and Bernard will ride for you. So that was what was put in place. So Greg came second in the 85 Tour, Bernardino won, on the understanding that next year it was all about Greg. Well, (laughs) it just didn't play out that way. After they crested the mountain together, Greg and Eno went live on French television. A lanky, blonde, naturally anxious young man, Greg could not have differed more from Eno, with his dark hair, broad shoulders, and casual demeanor. The Badger was sipping a post-race Heineken, not something sports doctors recommend, by the way. When he was asked if he thought Greg would win the tour, Greg expected a simple yes. But what he got was a shock. The tour, Eno said, is not over. To Greg, that statement was a betrayal. He later told the press he regretted not pushing ahead of his teammate. We had agreed to ride together to the top, and then afterwards he said, well, it's not over. We still have to do the time trial. Had he told me that at the bottom of the hill, I would have tacked him, and I honestly can say I would have beaten him by a minute at the top, maybe more. But Greg hadn't attacked. And now, even though Eno had promised to help Greg win, he was attacking Greg. The deal was off. The friendship was broken. And the race was on. I'm Molly Bloom, and this is Torched, a show about the heat of competition and the cost of greatness, both on and off the Olympic stage. Today, we're hearing two different stories about the Tour de France, a race where individual competitors need their teammates to help them win. But over the course of decades, the world has seen this race become a stain on the sport of competitive cycling. Our first story about Greg LeMond's unexpected showdown with his mentor, Bernard Hinault, shows what happens when a rider violates the unwritten rules about team loyalty and fair play. And our second story, about the rise of doping in the Tour de France shows exactly what happens to a sport when players seem to throw one of its most basic foundations out the window. The Tour de France isn't just the most competitive race in international cycling. It's something like a national festival. Over the course of three weeks, the competitors race all across France, bringing the pageantry of the Tour with them. This race goes back to 1903. It travels the entire country. And, you know, Greg says himself, Greg describes it very well. It's the equivalent of, you know, the Olympics, a Formula One race and the New York Marathon, you know, all thrown into one. Originally dominated by Frenchmen, the Tour de France now draws riders from all over the world. But there's always a home team favorite, beloved by the French. In the late 70s and early 80s, that favorite was, without question... Bernard the Badger Eno. You cannot underestimate how huge cycling is in France. And he became a hero and a, a, and a young winner of the Tour de France. And what's called the peloton, which is the group of cyclists that undertake the races, they always have a sort of unofficial leader. And Bernard Eno became their leader at a very young age, in his 20s. While Eno was reaching the pinnacle of his sport, winning both the 78 and 79 Tour de France... 
Greg was still a kid, competing in amateur races on the west coast of the U.S., growing up in the Sierra Nevadas. Greg began biking at 14, and by the time he was 18, Greg was beating cyclists almost twice his age. Talent like Greg's was rare, rare enough to attract the badger. He was incredibly talented, and Eno saw this talent from afar, and Eno actually came over to America and, you know, sort of headhunted Greg. And they said, I want you to come and be on my team and come over to France, make your living as a professional cyclist here, and almost become like an apprentice, become like the sort of Luke Skywalker. You know, you're the, you, you're the next in line to take over. It was more than just an offer to ride with Eno. The offer was for Greg to be the next Eno once his championship days were over. It was an offer too tempting to turn down. Greg and Kathy, who had just gotten married, left their Nevada home and moved to a remote and rainy part of Britannia in northwestern France. This was Eno's home turf, his training ground. Imagine leaving home, you know, your home in America to go to a complete, not just a different country, a different continent where you don't speak the language. And, you know, pro cycling is not all that glamorous. You know, you're in tiny sort of cold, drizzly villages in the middle of nowhere in France. You can't watch any television. It's quite a monastic experience. Craig began winning some races himself. His first major victory was at the 1983 World Championship in Switzerland. But when it came to the Tour de France, he was still there to help the Badger. After falling out with his previous coach, Eno started a new team named after its sponsor, a health goods company called La Vie Claire. Eno wanted Greg to help him win his fifth tour, which would officially put him in the history books alongside five-time winner Eddie Merck. But Bernard Tapie, the team's owner, had another incentive for Greg. He promised to make Greg the first million-dollar cyclist to sign him up. So it was sort of like, you know, signing up superstars. You know how you have the superstars. You know, it's sort of not quite a Harlem Globetrotters, but, you know, here's a team with two of the biggest stars in the sport. The idea was to build a team around a couple of big cycling superstars. And they had arguably the two biggest, Le Monde and Eno. And also Tappy, the owner, invented this new pedal, which again was quite revolutionary, but he promised Greg a cut of the money on the pedal. And so it was as a member of La Vie Claire that Greg first rode in the Tour de France, 1985. The race started off in Britannia, and Eno jumped out to an early lead. Here's John Tesh announcing the end of stage one of the 21-stage race. And so the final 100 meters for the man from Brittany playing here at home. And Bernard Eno proves that at 30 years old, he still has the strength to best a field 180 strong. The exhausted yet triumphant Frenchman has done it once again. By stage 12, Eno was four minutes ahead of the next closest rider, Greg. Even though the Badger had left him and the rest of the peloton in the dust, Greg knew one slip-up could change the complexion of the race. Just two days later on stage 14, Greg was proven right. Another rider collided with Eno, who hit the pavement so hard he broke his nose. He lost time and developed complications that hampered his breathing. Bernard Eno is hard as nails, but, you know, he gets up bloody and bruised and, and rides the next day. But, you know, he's not the same rider. He's suffering. You know, he smashed his face up. He's taking a crash on a bike. 
most of us wouldn't get back on for several months. These guys get back on on the next day. But for the next few days, something wasn't right. He started to fall behind. During the 19th stage, Irish writer Stephen Roche attacked, rocketing past Eno in an attempt to break away and win the stage. Eno couldn't keep up, but Greg could. Situations like these are where teams, strategies, and loyalties are tested. If Roche could put enough distance between himself and the rest of the peloton, he would be looking at an easy win. Greg was the only one who could put a stop to this. But keeping pace with Roche also meant passing Eno, Greg's team leader. As Greg chased down the only rider who could snatch victory away from their entire team, he threatened the arrangement that made them a team. Here's Phil Leggett capturing the drama as the race unfolds. He describes for viewers the power struggle between Lamond and Eno, specifically how Lamond could pull ahead. Lamond's dilemma has turned into a nightmare. He knows he's strong. To the chance of his name, Eno, the Badger, continues to fight, followed by his teammate, Nicky Ruteman. What's in the mind of Lamond? Treachery or is it loyalty? Greg could pass Rausch and give himself a shot at winning the Tour de France. But Lavie Claire's coach, Paul Coakley, told him to stay with Rausch, tire him out, and keep him in check so that Eno could still come out on top. The two men argued, Coakley from the passenger seat of the team car and Lamond from the seat of his bike, and Phil hung on every word. And for the first time in this tour, Lamond rebelled against the team's instructions. He angrily attempts to persuade his coach that he should be given the chance to win the tour. Lamond is now a frustrated young man. He knows he has the strength to attack, but his own team will not allow him to leave his leader behind. In the end, Greg did as he was told. He stuck with Roche, slowing him down and allowing Eno to regain his footing. A few days later, Eno won the 1985 Tour de France. When asked directly by announcer Phil Leggett, Lamond responded to rumors that had been swirling about Eno and his relationship and whether or not he was disappointed about falling short of victory. Lamond's response was diplomatic and calculated, citing team effort. Oh, we get along quite well. I mean, we're, I've raced with him. This is my fourth year. Um, the day of the Pyrenees stage, was there was a, a big misunderstanding between my director and that. You know, I, I was upset that night not knowing what I should do. But uh, as it turned out, I think it was the best tactic what we did because Stefan Roche was riding extremely well the next day. The main thing was that, that Lavi Claire wins the tour. As Greg and Kathy celebrated his second place finish and the success of the team, Eno spoke to reporters wearing the leader's yellow jersey. The American story, of course, another historic one for Greg Lamont from Rochelle County, Nevada. A kiss from his wife, Kathy. What about next year? A year later, Greg still believed that Eno would sacrifice for him as they began that year's tour. Then came stage nine. This was a time trial, where each rider competes the course one by one. Then their times are compared to determine who wins that stage. The Badger had come to win. Here's legendary announcer Phil Leggett once again calling to attention the tremendous ride of Eno. What will Greg Lamont be thinking now because the Blero, the Badger is back. Bernard Eno 
finding the strength still to come up to this line as if the race has only just started instead of being 31 miles old. Three stages later, Eno charged ahead of the peloton again. Phil Leggett was surprised, but impressed. Once again, Bernard Eno has dealt a severe blow. There he is, nobody assisting him. His pace up the climb here is quite devastating. The rhythm there ticking over nicely. And so the Badger has come out of his corner once again to take on all the riders in the Tour de France. The Badger was now more than five minutes ahead of Greg, a gap which many viewed as insurmountable. In an interview on CBS Sunday Sports, Greg was bewildered, angry, and outspoken about his place on Team La Vie Claire. A bold statement was about to be made. If I want to be frank, I, I probably should have never come on La Vie Claire because I feel I'm too close to Bernard Hinault, too close to his strength, that I end up always having to take the second position, and uh, it's my fault. You know, I mean, I probably should have stuck with the system you or some other team. That's all I can say. Eno made a mock apology, saying he hadn't meant to beat Greg by that much. According to Greg, the two almost came to blows. And I think even at that stage, Bernard knew how good Greg was. He was worried that even five minutes was enough. So he tacked him again on the tourmalet, and then Greg took off on his own. Furious after Eno's latest attack, Greg tore through the mountains, bringing a few other riders with him. Eno crested one climb, believing he had a comfortable lead only to see Le Mans tearing after him on the descent, taking the offensive. So the climbers have come down on Eno, and all of a sudden this Tour de France is once again an open race, and Eno is cracking. Greg won that stage by over a minute. He had begun the day more than five minutes behind Eno, but reduced that lead to just 40 seconds. Then on stage 17, Greg attacked again this time putting more than two minutes between himself and Eno. He became the first American to wear the leader's yellow jersey that day, while Eno sank to third place. At that point, Greg thought he had made his point. He had endured an attack from the Badger and then beaten him with an attack of his own. He thought the fight was over. So Greg let Eno finish just ahead of him on the Alpe d'Huez, that's the mountaintop climb that we covered at the top of this story. Greg was leading the race, and the Levie Claire team finally appeared to be riding for him. But then came Eno's comment, the tour is not over. And then it actually got really quite weird. There was lots of talk of sabotage. You know, they'd heard rumors that someone was going to try and knock Greg off his bike. And even the director of the tour came up to Greg and his family and said, look, we'll try and protect you so nothing happens. They're like, what has come to this? Greg felt totally alone. He was worried that his own teammates were going to sabotage him on Eno's behalf. The only people he could trust were his wife, Kathy, and his dad, who began personally overseeing his food, his water, and his gear. Is he going to attack me again? What's going to happen? You know, is my bike going to get sabotaged? Am I going to have my food poisoned? Before stage 20, a time trial in the city of St. Etienne, Greg was asked if he was confident in Eno's support, and he gave a straightforward answer. He's attacked me from the beginning of the Tour de France. He's never helped me once, and I, I don't feel confident at all uh, with him. So. As the leader of the race, Greg would go last, meaning Eno had an opportunity to lay down the gauntlet. He nearly crashed trying to close the gap between him and Greg. 
A little while later, Greg began his time trial, feeling the pressure. And on the same corner, Greg lost control of his bike. Lamont has crashed on a tight turn and is in a panic to get back on his bike. An aide from the team car runs to give him a legal push. The American media had cameras on Kathy, who was watching the race from the team bus with Greg's mom, Bertha, as they received the news that Greg's race was in jeopardy. Greg was still riding, but the crash had cost him over half a minute. His bike was so damaged that he eventually had to switch to a new one, costing him more time. But Greg kept going. With just three stages left, his lead stood at more than two minutes. That's when Eno finally stopped attacking, even telling the media, we won't fight each other anymore. With his victory all but a guarantee, Greg sat for an interview for French television. He was on the precipice of a historic win, the pinnacle of a cycling achievement, and the dream of every competitive rider. But all anyone wanted to talk about was Enel. Here's Greg's response when asked if he should have won last year rather than Eno. I have to say that uh, it's, it's been very confusing because he had promised after last year, I really felt that he would keep his promise. And I felt now at 25 years old, I could have had two Tour de France victories in my legs. Greg arrived in Paris wearing yellow and became the first ever American champion of the Tour de France. John talked to him about the moment. It's quite sad in a way because I said, gee, you know, you finally, finally, after everything, after the ebb and flow, he wins. And I said, you must have felt amazing. He said, well, no, not really. It was just a relief. He didn't, said, I didn't really at the time feel much joy, but it was a big, it was a big deal. Eno retired. Greg went on to win two more tours after leaving La Vie Claire. Greg claims that they're on friendly terms today, but that feud overshadowed his friendship with Eno and forced him to weigh his loyalty to his team against his drive to win. Lamont can be heard here responding to a line of questioning about Eno's true intent on helping Lamont win. There was no holding back. Everything he's done is failed. And it's always been easy for him to say, well, I was doing it for Greg and Mom. But in reality, I feel like he's, he's doing it for himself. Hey, staying always your friend or not? Yes. I, I just want people to know that when I win this race, I don't want people to think that Bernardino gave it to me because it was far from it. I want people to realize that I won this race fair and square, that I'm the winner of the Tour de France. NetCredit is here to say yes, because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partners. NetCredit. Credit to the people. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
Hulu is coming in hot this month with new shows, new movies, and all new seasons of your faves. Don't miss FX's Clipped, the story of one NBA team's racial reckoning, starring Lawrence Fishburne. Stream a new season of Shorzy, the underdog hockey comedy that might just knock your teeth out. Then catch the high-speed drama Ferrari, starring Adam Driver and Penelope Cruz. Kick your streaming into high gear this month with so much new stuff to watch on Hulu. Twelve years after Greg won his first Tour de France, the famous race faced a reckoning. What happens to a sport when it comes to light that almost everyone has been cheating? Phil Leggett was still there for what would prove to be one of the darkest hours in the Tour's history. And this really is a black day for the Tour de France. And I have to say, in the 26 years I've reported on this tour, I've never known anything quite like it. The 1998 Tour kicked off in Dublin as part of an effort to spread cycling beyond the borders of France. But it was literally on the French border that a routine customs check set a massive scandal into motion. On the morning of July 8th, Reuters journalist Francois Thomaso got a call from the source close to the French police officer, Olivier Hamois. Olivier called me and said, well, I have that strange story, a, a car with, with lots of substances, lots of bottles with stuff in it has been seized by the customs near the, the Belgian border. Uh, it has yet Festina signs on it and, it's, and apparently it was going to the Tour de France start in Dublin. Festina was a French cycling team, the best French cycling team, named after the Swiss watch company that sponsored them. Festina had placed third in the team category in the 1996 Tour and second in 1997. Willie Voyette wasn't a rider, but he was part of Festina as a soigneur, which literally means one who provides care. Vouet provided food, gave massages, looked after equipment, and just generally lent a hand to the Festina riders. Why wasn't he with the team in Ireland? One of the guys thought, this is strange. What is that Festina team car doing here? They should be in Dublin. They, they, it shouldn't come from Belgium into France because uh, Festina was a French team. So, I mean, you know, their curiosity was kind of aroused, and, uh, and so they checked the car. They found a cache of anabolic steroids, syringes, and a hormone called erythropoietin, or EPO. EPO occurs naturally, but since the days of the Badger and Greg LeMond, a rising number of athletes, especially cyclists, had begun injecting it to improve their stamina. It worked, but it also had dangerous side effects. It was obvious to anyone watching closely that EPO was affecting cycling. The problem with EPO is that it really changed the sport in many ways, and it could change a very average rider into a Tour de France winner. And so it made the survival of the sport itself uh, in danger, because all of a sudden, the guy who won the Tour de France in 1996, for instance, Bjarne Ries, who is a Danish guy who's still, also still around as a team manager now, he was a very average rider before that. You know, in 1992, 1993, he's a guy who couldn't, you know, couldn't ride up a hill, you know? And then in 1996, he wins the, the, the biggest cycling race in the world. So obviously something wrong was going on and everybody was aware of it. Like a lot of banned substances, EPO wasn't some harmless supplement. It had been linked to mysterious and untimely deaths of competitive cyclists. 
As Francois recalls, it was one of the many drugs in vogue among athletes at the time. Cycling had become a real unhealthy place, full of, you know, some guys were just junkies, you know, so some guys really, there were lots of death. I mean, uh, Frank van den Broek was a Belgian rider uh, at the time, died also very young. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a sad place. I mean, these guys, without realizing it, in many ways, they had become kind of uh, rich and popular junkies, you know. Back at the border, Willy Voet was taken into custody for bringing drugs into France. In what must have been one of the most obvious lies ever told, he told authorities that more than 400 vials of EPO and steroid drugs were for his personal use. But the truth would soon come to light. Willy was carrying drugs for the entire Festina team, and he had enough left over to make some money on the side. French police raided his team headquarters the next day. Meanwhile, in Ireland, gallons of drugs were being flushed down toilets by frantic riders. When the race hit French soil for stage three, the police immediately arrested Festina's manager and team doctor. They admitted that they had helped their riders dope. But they claimed that this was an inevitable part of the race. His line of defense of the Festina team manager was to say, there are drugs uh, everywhere in cycling. EPO, especially in other drugs, steroids, corticoids, it's all over the, the bunch, you know, all, everybody's taking them. And we decided that to organize doping ourselves with our doctors for the, the safety and the health of our riders, because otherwise they go to any kind of dealers. Regardless of their intentions, Festina had just admitted to international drug trafficking. Once you have a ring of guys organizing drugs, trafficking, you know, inside the uh, cycling inside of the Tour de France, where you look more and more like a criminal ring or like the mafia. The UCI, cycling's governing body, was horrified. Faced with the admission, they had no choice but to kick Festina out of the race. Phil Leggett sounded heartbroken as he broke the news to viewers. And this really is a black day for the Tour de France. The news broken last night by the Director General, Jean-Marie Leblanc. More on the implications in a moment. And I have to say, in the 26 years I've reported on this tour, I've never known anything quite like it. For a few hours, Festina riders prepared to start stage six, defying the ban. But eventually, team leader Richard Viranc gave a tearful interview announcing his team's withdrawal. This guy was kind of, you know, a hard-boiled climber, uh, a little bit arrogant, crying like a small kid, you know, because the, the police had broken his toy. Vironk said his fellow riders had been blindsided for years, decades, according to some. The UCI had simply looked the other way when it came to doping. When I did one of my first Tour de France in the late 80s, a guy, an Italian sprinter named Guido Bentempi, he, was, he failed a dope test for steroids during the Tour de France. He wasn't kicked out of the race. He was just, you know, put down. He was ranked last on the stage where the test took place, but he kept on riding. But unlike her predecessors, the newest French minister of sport, Marie-Georges Buffet, took a hard line against performance-enhancing drugs and the athletes that use them. What changed at the time was that all of a sudden, you know, a custom, a practice that was very, very frequent, which was part of the, the cycling culture, all of a sudden became illegal. And the problem for the riders is that they didn't understand that their world had changed and that what they had been doing for nearly a century was finished. In the wake of these arrests, 
devotees of cycling like Phil Leggett and his fellow commentator, Paul Sherwin, were beginning to wonder if their sport even had a future. The Tour de France will continue, the sport of cycling will continue, because if you cast your mind back to 1988 and the Ben Johnson being positive in the Seoul Olympics, athletics is still around. Indeed it is, and of course I'm just hoping that we can get rid of this cancer in the sport of cycling, and let's hope that some good comes out of this, and not only riders, but officials get together and get rid of it. As questions swirled around them, reporters hounded them, and the police took their teammates away in handcuffs, the remaining riders decided to make a stand. The riders uh, stage a protest, you know, because uh, and it's, it's, it's always been like that. Every time uh, new anti-doping regulations were put into uh, force, they always went on strike saying, oh, we're not gangsters, oh, we can't do our job properly, you know, and it was kind of, yeah, like, like, like the, the riders' union, you know, uh, sticking together to defend their rights. But even if they wanted to defend the riders, the UCI couldn't control the French police or the media. A program on French television last night showing journalists looking into the waste bins at team hotels for syringes and signs of illegal drugs was for the remaining riders in the race the last straw. And this morning, the riders themselves said enough is enough and led by the top Frenchman, Laurent Jalabert, they went on strike as the race official start approached. The scandal deepened when the police raided the hotel rooms of TVM, a Dutch team. They forced TVM riders to give hair and blood samples in a hospital in the alpine town of Albertville. Then the riders staged another protest, riding the next stage at a snail's pace. After this stage, TVM rider Savas Nava explained why. I think uh, the whole peloton was, uh, was one today, and uh, yeah, I hope uh, things are going to change now. How angry are the riders? I think they are very angry, yeah. Because uh, we all uh, treated like criminals and uh, with all the press and everything uh, around us and the police and yeah, we, we're not, not getting a decent, they're uh, not handling decent, decent with us and so it's all, it's not good what's happening now. For riders like Nava, the issue was one of workers' rights. Arriving in France for a bike race, they had never expected to end up with French authorities seizing their DNA. But while TVM pulled out of the race in protest, some of their team members' samples came back positive for EPO. The fact that a quick standard test at a hospital had found doping where the UCI's test found none underscored what a farce the whole thing had been. In fact, that was the name the local papers gave to the race, the Tour de Farce. I think probably half of the field was left in the race, you know. Most of the uh, the riders went. I mean, it was a tour de front when if you were feeling a little bit, uh, you know, like uh, if you had a cold or a stomach bug, anything was, was a good excuse to go away. Victory ultimately went to Marco Pantani, an Italian climbing specialist nicknamed the Little Elephant. But the headline on the final day of the race was that professional cycling was in shambles. Here's legendary commentator Phil Leggett, once again, raising awareness on live television over the tainted finale that day. Well, the International Cycling Union know now there are cheats in this sport. They must show they are strong, they must increase the penalties for the offenders, and they also must make stronger doping controls. The riders who are coming into Paris today, I think, are relieved the secret is out. I hope they are all clean, as everybody does. But within a year, Pentani had been expelled from the Giro d'Italia, Italy's Grand Cycling Tour after a suspicious blood test. He died of a cocaine overdose just five years later. 
In 2013, the French Senate released a report containing proof that he had doped during the 1998 Tour de France. Almost every single rider in the Tour de France peloton in 1998 confessed they were all taking drugs, every single one of them. By the end of the Festina affair, Greg LeMond had already retired. But he and his wife, Kathy, were still hugely respected and deeply loved figures in the world of competitive cycling. Greg's victories have never been linked to doping. And he says that while he was clean, he did witness the rise of this rampant drug use by other riders, even during his heyday in the 80s and 90s. For Greg, whose races with the Badger seemed to test the very soul of the tour, Festina, and the institutional problems it exposed were something else altogether. And it's something he continues to speak out against today. You can't control every rider. You're always going to maybe have the chance that somebody's positive. When I was racing, if there was doping, it was an individual thing. When you read about the organization of a team putting that pressure, a rider doesn't have a choice. Either you quit the sport or you give in. And that's just, just it's criminal to me. It's, it shouldn't be that way. Torched is a production of Film Nation Entertainment in association with Gilded Audio. It's executive produced by me, Molly Bloom, Alyssa Martino, Milan Papelka, Andy Chug, and Whitney Donaldson. This episode was produced by Nikki Stein and Kelsey Albright. It was written by Stephen Wood. Additional story editing from James Boo. Editing and scoring from Ben Chug. Tori Smith is our associate producer. Olivia Canny is our production assistant. Technical direction and engineering by Nick Dooley. Original music by James Lavino. Special thanks to Allison Cohen and Matt Azenstadt. Next time on Torched, we talk with Lance Armstrong about his prolific career, his fall from grace, and his many comebacks. If you look at the entire history of cycling, this was a sport of criminals and bandits. It's been a bandito sport for a long time. I, th- I actually think it's doing a lot better now, but it was the wild, wild west. That's next time on Torched. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. We'll see you next time. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent. Being there day and night building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.